<laughs> so, Karen, how do you feel about that? <laughs> um, it is interesting. We noticed as we pulled in, uh, I believe that Mike is out of town. Um, so the tables are turned. All the mean, nasty things he must have said about me while I was gone, now I can do the same. Um, no, in, in, in reality, I really do appreciate Mike um, being willing to teach, I believe it was six classes in a row, um, so that I could prepare for and uh, continue to recover from, from the trip. And I appreciate his approach and, and what he's been able to do. And I know several times he mentioned... Um, it's kind of like trying to pave the way a little bit that, that our styles may be very different, Mike's style and mine. Uh, truthfully, the, the two classes at least that I've sat in on with Mike, our styles are, I think, more similar than they are different. And regardless of our styles, um, we're all taking it from the same source. And I don't actually mean taking it from the same source. This is a very helpful book. I hope you guys have been consistently reading through this. But really, we're studying from the same source, through the Bible. And, and, and I appreciate uh, Mike handled several of the introductory chapters, which don't, didn't until today really have a, a portion of text for us to base the thing off of. Um, and has done a really good job of, of reminding us where our authority comes from. And, and, and God's will is the thing that's, that's basing uh, our class and our time together. So... Um, I appreciate what what he's been doing. Did you start the recorder? I did start the recorder. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know when you guys saw the list of classes offered for this quarter. What's being offered downstairs, and then you see what's being offered. Who read church discipline and thought, "Sweet, yeah, I want to do that." You did. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. We know, I believe, you're excited about it. I hope that you're excited about it because we know what, what's involved in church discipline. But I really appreciated chapter 4 to remind us that we're not really studying church discipline. We're studying church fellowship. And it's the unity that we strive to have together in Christ. That it's, that's a wonderful thing that we can't find anywhere else. How do we maintain that unity? Well, sometimes... Discipline is required. So, if I may, perhaps a, a relaunch or remarketing next time. Call it church fellowship, <laughs> and maybe maybe we'll we'll take the downstairs classroom. <laughs> <laughs> because it's something that Christ Christ created the church for us to enjoy this thing: unity and fellowship. Um, brotherhood and love, it's this thing that he experiences with Christ and he wants us to enjoy that. Him and the church, he wants us to enjoy it together. But we know, as with anything worthwhile, it's not going to happen without effort. It's not going to happen sometimes without friction and without difficulty. But the end result, the reward that we can enjoy, the benefit that we uh, derive from it, is that much more worth it. And so it's fellowship that we're after. It's fellowship with Christ. It's fellowship with each other. And sometimes, sometimes discipline is necessary. Mike mentioned, and, and, and I believe I brought it up in, in one of my comments uh, on Wednesday, um, this is a deeply personal issue. And it's not just deeply personal for Mike or for me. I imagine 
you guys are in this class because it's been a deeply and probably is a deeply personal issue for you right now. It's an emotional issue. We're talking about relationships with people that we love, not that we loved, but still currently, presently love. And yet God calls us to do very difficult things with people that we love. So it's not exclusive to me. It's not exclusive to Mike. I think that we could all share stories, and perhaps we should, uh, with each other. Uh, We're here for each other. I think we have a lot more in common than we probably think. Um, Satan wants us to isolate ourselves and think our problems are exclusive and unique, and they're usually, typically not. It's an emotional thing, but what I want us not to do, and I think Mike has done an exceptional job of this, is we are not sitting down to this book or this book and being led by how we feel about this particular topic. But instead, um, as I think was, was introduced in the, the Peacemaker class, the, the think, do, feel train. You guys remember this? I could draw a train, but I'm not going to do it. Like, we are driven by our thought process, which drives us to do the right thing. And hopefully, if we're open to it, we then feel good about doing the right thing. But put those, those cars out of order and the train's not going to run. Um, I just explained this to our kids the other day, and they they really latched on to that. Pun intended. There you go. Um, If we are diligent to follow God's plan for church discipline, we will feel good about what we're doing. That doesn't mean that if we do what God requires, it will always have the result that we desire. I wish I could say, yes, we exercised church discipline with a family member, and they instantly came back, and everything was was perfectly great. I can't say that. I think many of you can't say that. But what we can say is, it was still effective. How can we say that? Maybe the person is still living in unrepented sin, but we could still say church discipline was effective. How? How can we say that? Keeping the church pure. Because the, the objective of church discipline is twofold. And one is to keep the church, the collective, pure, holy. You know, God's gift for a healthier, holier church. Sometimes removing that person from our midst is hopefully going to drive to bring them back. But it will accomplish the goal of keeping the church pure. Right? And what's the, what's the other objective? We kind of alluded to it, but what's the other objective? Well, it's restoration, yeah. but a, a, a part of that maybe is just being clear about where folks stand. They need to know where they stand, be clear. Yes. And we need to be clear. Yes. Yes. So the goal, the goals are restoration of that individual. We want them to come out of their sin, to return to the Lord, to be part of God's holiness again. The other objective is to keep those who are striving to be pure and and unified in Christ, to keep that collective free from sin and from the influences of the world. It's to glorify God. And so sometimes we have to put those people away. And I I very much appreciate the first few chapters. Putting them away is, is like the, you know, 
DEFCON 10, right? That's the thing that we, we, we shouldn't immediately go to that form of discipline. There are so many other things that we are required to do beforehand. But sometimes putting them away um, is, is what is necessary and is what is needed. So how do we determine? If we can't use our own feelings, how do we determine what God requires of us in these situations? I think Ephesians 4, the chapter that we're going to study today, is exceptionally helpful. Uh, the, the, the chapter here in the book, chapter 5, don't get confused. The book's chapter is 5, Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 5 in the book is speaking the truth in love. And they really focus on, uh, he really focuses on verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. I would like us together to read that in its entirety. Before I do that, however, were there any other thoughts or questions from the, the previous four chapters? Um, I had a couple of notes that I wanted to bring up, but any other thoughts or questions? Chapter 4 and, and beyond. Frosty, are you just fixing no, your I hair? Have, or you no. actually got it? Okay. <laughs> so on, on page 51 of chapter 4, I am jumping around a little bit. We'll blame it on jet lag here. Um... Under the, the heading, Another Way to Say I Love You. And I don't know if that struck you all the same way it did for me. That's, that's a term that we use in our parenting. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm, at times, punishing you or even physically harming you temporarily because I love you. And that seems to our world so foreign, so strange. How can those things uh, exist together? But he says, not only is fellowship the appropriate and necessary context for discipline, disciplinary acts are themselves an expression of our fellowship. We discipline because we are in fellowship with one another, not because we no longer desire to be. And that is one of the biggest lies Satan will tell us about this topic. You're pushing them away because you don't like them. You're pushing them out because you don't want them among you. That's the farthest thing from the truth from the truth. It should be in Christ's church. We desire so badly that they enjoy the holy, healthy relationship that we enjoy in Christ that when they live contrary to it, we, we have to, for their own good and the good of Christ's body, um, put them away. But he says, uh, skipping down, if our fellowship is real and there is genuine love for one another, we cannot simply sit by and watch a brother or sister become entangled in sin and do nothing to reclaim them. What kind of fellowship exists when we see the devastating effects of sin in the life of a fellow Christian, yet refuse to express our concern in an open and loving way? Um, have you guys had experiences like this? I did before getting married, before having children. I remember working at Kohl's. One of my first jobs. I learned a lot working at Kohl's. Um, saw a mother whose child was doing whatever they wanted. They were running around the store. They were hiding between the racks. And the mother started to count to ten. <laughs> and the kid had played this game before, because it's a game. The mother got to ten. The child did not change their behavior. They just got further out of the mother's reach. So what did she do? She started on to twenty. <laughs> you know, congratulations. She's teaching her child to count. 
And the child only stopped misbehaving when the mother was somewhere in her 30s because the child got tired of doing whatever they were wanting to do and, and shifted their behavior. That mother was not showing love to that child. She was seeing misbehavior. She was seeing something that was going to be a detrimental type of habit that this child needed to break themselves of or be broken of that would harm them in their future if they kept living and acting that way. But the mother said nothing. Is that love? And that's part of what, that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about probably today and Wednesday is defining these terms. The world has tried to redefine love. To love a child is, is to never, never, you know, hinder their growth development and emotionally cause distress. That's what, that's what our culture says love is. Let's, let's let the Bible define those terms. And then one other section of, of chapter 4 in, in, on page 54 and, and Mike alluded to it. Our assumption is that uh, we, we all have read these chapters beforehand. Um, if you were to summarize chapter 4, what was it talking about? What was kind of the main, main point of chapter 4? David? You have to have fellowship to have something to withdraw. Right. You have to have fellowship first before you can withdraw said fellowship, right? And so there's a lot of work that is required of us, not just the elders or the leadership of a church, but every member. We need to be actively pursuing each other and getting involved so that when, unfortunately, hopefully rarely, fellowship has to be withdrawn from someone, it is a, it's a devastating thing. It should be. But that's not going to exist unless fellowship is, exists first, right? But on page 54, near to the top, starting with this question, does this mean? It says, does this mean that discipline cannot be undertaken until we attain an ideal state of fellowship that involves everyone at the same level? So the question is being asked, ideally, we would have deep personal relationships with each other so that when... The idea, even the idea of, of withdrawing that fellowship is proposed, it would be this devastating thing. What if we haven't done as good of a job of that as we should? Does that mean that we can't propose any kind of discipline? He says, or does it suggest that those on the fringes, those who willfully choose not to get invested and involved in the collective that those on the fringes shouldn't be subjected to congregational discipline when it would otherwise seem necessary. What do you all think? Should we wait until the ideal fellowship exists in a congregation before we even suggest attempting to discipline anyone? Why not? It's the same as with your child. It would be the same argument. Well, he's too young to understand. He's not supposed to be doing that right now. We've got to wait until he gets a little older to be able to reason with him. You can't, you can't wait that long. You have to address the problem as it comes up and help them to get where they need to be. Okay. What else? Did I see another hand? David? Yeah, I mean, that kind of reasoning would say you would never discipline anybody because Correct. there's never the perfect situation because we're all imperfect people. Right. 
Should I never discipline my kids until Karen and I are perfect people? <laughs> Thankfully, not. No, we are imperfect people striving to be perfect. That's what God calls us to be. That's what Ephesians calls us to be. We're, we're trying to be that, but we can't. We can't. We certainly can't without Christ. Do we wait to do what we're called to do until we've already achieved perfection? Well, no. It does kind of make me think about that story from the last class, though, about the elders who made this list and then realized that they had not been doing their part. And so their first part, their first step was to go to the people. Yes. If there are um, people on the fringes that do need discipline, which this also overlaps again with the peacemaker class. That my fir- our first reaction as a group should be to reach out and say, "Where yes. have we failed you? Yes. Have we not done enough? Where you know what do you need?" Um, that should perhaps be the first part of that discipline process. Yes, because withdrawing fellowship, like I like I said, it's it's like the nuclear option, right? That is not should not ever be our first suggestion. There are so many other things, and I think that example from chapter 4 was a great example. There are so many other things that we can biblically do to achieve those same results that um, must be tried first before we even consider um, uh, putting, putting them away. I, that jumped out to me because I, I, I will tell you personally this was one of the excuses that some of my family members used to say, well, you shouldn't be withdrawing fellowship from us because you didn't do enough. And I'm not going to stand up and say, well, no, I did. I did everything I absolutely should have done. No, no. We, we as a family and their congregation recognized there were faults. We should have done more. But it wasn't enough to say, well, you are then free from any obligation to change your behavior. We should be striving to follow the biblical example, to have the deep kind of fellowship that God and Christ have, that Christ desires to have with his church. When we fail to hit perfection, um, we ask God for forgiveness, we repent to those that we've affected, but we still continue to follow the biblical pattern when it comes to, to discipline. Yeah. I think in those situations, if we go, you know, to people with that, you know, you're right, I did not, there were ways I could have served you better, and I didn't, and I'm, you know, please forgive me for that, and where can we go from here? That's when you're going to see the other person's heart either show up as someone who's really seeking God or not, because their response to your humility and your you know, obvious desire to work with them and help let's both pray together and let's both build a better relationship with Christ, then you're going to see whether that was an excuse Yes. based on yes. how they respond to that. Yeah, and don't we see that humble hearts typically respond well to other humble hearts. Proud hearts tend to get more callous when they are confronted with someone's humility. Um, absolutely. Any other thoughts from chapter 4? So, to begin chapter 5, let's read Ephesians chapter 4. And if I could have just a couple of volunteers, someone willing to read the first 16 verses, 
And someone willing to read the, the following 16 verses. So Micah, can you do 1 through 16? David, would you do 17 through 32, please? I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from, the, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. And yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Thank you. In verses 1 through 3, what does Paul urge these Christians to do and for what purpose? What's he after? Asking everyone to work diligently to keep the unity of the Spirit. To work diligently, yet to, to maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit. Okay, what else? By being helpful. Yes, and so how should we do it? Yeah, verse 2 really goes into the detail about that. You do it with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and we're going to define that term because it's used several times through this chapter. I like the way he says in verse 1 that they're to, they or we then are to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Yes. And so understanding the context of Ephesians, the first three chapters are describing that calling. What is it that God has already done? Well, he's, he's uh, adopted us as sons. He's, he's foreknown this plan and carried it out through Jesus. He has done these things for the sake of his glory, knowing that, therefore, walk in such a way to be worthy of that. And that's, I mean, that's a study in and of itself. And it's, it's a massive task. But thankfully, the Apostle, the Holy Spirit through this Apostle, does not simply leave us up to our own devices to figure out how to do that. But he wants us to walk worthy of what's already been done for us so that we can maintain this unity. And the book pointed out, not create a unity. The unity has already been created. Jesus already did it. Thank goodness, thank goodness for that. Right? We, we don't have to worry about how do I keep these, these different people together. Right? No, Jesus and his saving blood and God's graciousness has already done that. We simply need to work to maintain it. How do we do that? What are some ways in this chapter that he encourages them to maintain this unity? Right there in the first verse, again, he, he mentions that we are the prisoner of the Lord. It's, that's a term that we tend to read over and not really want to associate ourselves with, recognizing that Jesus bought us. We are no longer ourselves, our own. We need to submit our will to his will because a lot of things that God asks us to do is not easy or goes contrary to our will. Right. You know, that brother Craig, he really took me off. I don't want to go and talk to him. God... Just like David said, we need to humble ourselves, go and speak to him, because it's not our will anymore. Jesus bought us. It's not my will be done, but your will be done. Right. And it's a right. mindset that we have to get in the habit of thinking that way. Yeah. Paul thought of himself as a, as a prisoner for the Lord. Um and there are other passages that Paul talks about. We are we are no longer slaves to sin, we are slaves to righteousness. So it's not this freedom that allows us to do whatever we want, whenever we want. No, we've put ourselves under a different master, a better master. But we are still slaves to a master. And, and recognizing that, again, that is so countercultural, especially in this country. 
where slavery is the worst possible thing that humans could ever experience. It's simply not true. If we put ourselves under a good master, it's actually the best place for us to be. Those, Man, I would be so canceled if I said that and like all the cameras. I was thinking you're supposed to turn the tape around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm gonna... <laughs> yes, John. Those unifying attitudes in verses 2 and 3 are critical yes. to what he later says. Yes. So understanding, it, it is required that we have humility and gentleness and patience, that we learn to bear with one another. That means carry a heavy load. Right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Um, that, that's a question that several of you have asked since I got back from the trip. How was the trip? <laughs> Incredibly difficult. It was the hardest trip we'd ever had. Even though we had people over there carrying most of our equipment, that in and of itself was difficult. It was physically and mentally the, the hardest thing we've ever done. And yet, it was probably the best trip we've ever had. And I've had conversations with, with, uh, with Ethan that there is a natural human tendency that we don't want to push ourselves to the point of pain. We want to go to the point of where we're comfortable and we like to stay there. Like, we all like that. But the best things happen when we push ourselves beyond that when we carry a load heavier than we have before. And so God's true unity with his people is only going to be accomplished when we are willing to bear the loads of, of other people. When we are willing to bear with each other and do that in love, and again, we'll define it, it's not that warm and fuzzy feeling, because if I only ever acted when I felt warm and fuzzy towards someone, we would do very little for other people our marriages would be in the state that most of our culture's marriages are in. I only actually do things for you when I hope that you'll do something in return or I feel warm towards you. Um, I went on Google yesterday and today. I thought, surely I've made a mistake trying to find the definition of love. And they've got a dozen in there. And none of it is in any way describing the word that the Scripture uses. It is this warm affection emotional sensation that we have towards other people or things. There wasn't anything as far as Google would tell us or Webster's would tell us about what true genuine love is. The same kind of list that he has there in verse, uh, verse 2, he does a very similar thing at the end of the chapter. Uh, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander. This is the ESV. There are different translations for some of these words. Put those things away from you, along with all malice. So you've jettisoned those things. Instead, fill yourself up with being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And not just forgiving one another, but doing it in the same way that God in Christ has forgiven you. Whoa. That means I'm going to keep no record of wrongs, ever. That means I'm not going to treat you like you have hurt me. I'm going to remove your sins from me. I'm going to forget them. Oh, man, yeah, that's, that's a steep standard. So the verses that we were focusing on, verses 15 and 16, and this phrase, speaking the truth in love, really I'd say 11 through 16 helps us get the right kind of 
picture here. Instead of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, Paul says instead to speak the truth in love. What essential concepts need to be established before we can effectively do that? David. We have to know what the truth is. Aha! We have to know what the truth is. Why is that so difficult in our culture today? They don't want to know. Because truth is whatever you want it to be. Truth is whatever. You have a truth and I have a truth. And shame on me for ever suggesting that I should impose my truth upon you. Is that the word? Is that what God means here? No. Truth is absolute. Now, he gave us apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip us to have this unity and yes. to know this truth. And so it's based on the standard. You know, what is it that the apostles were teaching? It was the standard. It was God's word. Yes. And so we have to get into that word and know it well to know what the truth is, to know how to speak the truth in love. That's right. So if you were to biblically define truth, how would you do it? What would you say? It's God's standard. It's God's standard. Okay. Jesus said, my word is truth. So yes. Thy word is truth. Yes. Jesus said that God's word is truth. Based on John 1, what is he actually saying? I am, in fact, that's what he says in John 14. I am the way, the truth, the life. And again, our culture does not like the idea of saying that there's only one truth. They don't, they don't like that. Not only are we saying there's only one truth, but Jesus himself said there's only one way to it, and it's through me, he says. So he's, he's making this very, very narrow definition of truth. So first, we need to define what that is. What is truth? But here's the thing. Sometimes, and I'll be the first to admit, that I've done this, I'm super good at that. Do you know how many friends I've made doing that? Do you know how many relationships I've destroyed by doing that? That's the punch them in the nose with the truth approach. Right between the eyes. Yep. I still have to work on that. What happens when you get up and you start doing that? What does it sound like you're saying? You get up and you start dishing out truth to those listening. What does it sound like you're saying? I'm better than you. You yeah. need to listen to me. I've got it figured out. And you all need to get in line with me. <laughs> None of us can say that. None of us can say that. Even when we may pull out a verse of the Bible and say, look, Acts 2.38, man, repent and be baptized. Bam! Is that how Peter presented that truth? The whole sermon was just Acts 2.38? 
No. What, what did Peter actually do? He's talking to a group of people who murdered the Messiah. Did he, did he lead with that? What did he do, John? Well, he led them there. Yeah. I mean, yes. He, he brought them to that point. Uh, with what? What did he use? Well. You did it out of ignorance. <laughs> Commonality. He started with something they all agreed on, right? He said, let's talk the prophets. They knew the prophets. They loved the prophets. Then he brought in David. I mean, the, the, the king that they all loved and respected. And he's building towards condemning them for murdering the Messiah. That was the truth. But he found a way to make sure that he was doing it in this way. Because I don't know if you've had different experiences than I have. This has never proven effective with me. <laughs> has it proved effective with you? Nor, whoops, nor <coughs> is this particularly effective. This is what our culture is trying to do right now. And again, they've, they've misdefined that. But they want to do that. Actually, it's just speak love. How effective is that? Someone is living in a way that is destructive to them, which will in turn inevitably be destructive towards others. And we believe, our culture believes, that this is the way to do it. How effective has that proven to be? And by love, again, I'm using their definition, love is, I will never say or do anything to make you feel uncomfortable. Because what makes you feel comfortable makes another person uncomfortable. And what feels good to me doesn't always feel good to everybody else. It is anarchy. It's a great word for it. Yep. You can't judge anyone. I watched a video yesterday. A guy went out on the street. He was asking college-age students based on their what they've been taught, what their language of love is, is it okay for incest between two consenting adults? And of course, they have to say yes. Right? Yeah, when you take that line of reasoning, you take that train all the way to the station, you arrive somewhere that even our culture doesn't want to go. They're heading there. They don't see it. But once you start con condoning all forms of love, they're going to take themselves to a place where nobody wants us to be. Right. It's beginning to show up. Okay. I mean, I feel it is. Oh, yeah. Because you don't discipline a child, you have an undisciplined adult. That's, that's right. Yeah, we've had, we've had enough generations and, of this experience. And it kills me every time you see on the news, well, where's this violence coming from? <laughs> well, because you didn't do this. Because they don't want to look at that. But first of all, they didn't, they didn't do this in any way. Uh -uh. They, didn't, they didn't speak up at all. Um, but secondly, they were doing it based on a, a wrong understanding of what this word means. The wrong definition. And they were doing it based on a truth that is subjective, and you know, it's subject to change. Uh, Karen, and then, yeah. You know, when we are try striving to share the gospel with people or striving to be unified as a group, we're really trying to avoid what it says in verse 14 
Um, we don't want to be children that are tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness of deceitful schemes. You know, we we want to keep um, <coughs> unity yes. and guide one another so that we can stay out of this crazy. You know, that's that's what happens when we're not looking to God or we're not looking to Jesus. And it makes me think of, like, in a marriage, when you have two people that as they grow closer to God, they're growing closer to each other. Um, you know, like, we've talked about, like, a triangle and how when you're going at the sides of a triangle, you're getting closer to, you know, that's, that's characteristic of the church, too. The closer that we're getting to God, we should be getting closer to one another as well. Yes, and it is a mistake to try and simply draw, do whatever it takes to draw closer to each other and forget that, that we should first and foremost be heading towards the same direction in God, in Christ, in, in his unity. And the, the byproduct of that is we will draw closer to each other because the dangers of that, what are the dangers of that? If we are trying to create unity rather than maintain Christ's unity, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to create unity, what tends to happen when we do that? Herding cats. It's like herding cats. <laughs> we make an idol out of the relationships that we have, and we'll do anything that's necessary to maintain that. And using Karen's triangle... Uh, Analogy: We can get closer to each other, potentially, but there's no chance of being closer to God. Yes. You know, how many of us have heard, family is forever? Right? There's nothing stronger than blood. It's a lie. I'm never going to be invited on a college campus. It's a, it's a lie. Unless you want to say there's nothing stronger than Christ's blood. I am not here to make sure that I never ever break my family relationships. That's not, what, that's not why God put us here. I pray fervently and I'm going to do the best I can within his will to do that. Because I do love my family. But I'm not here to worship. I, I don't exist to worship my family. I don't exist to glorify my family. My prayer is that in my attempts, feeble and imperfect as they are, to glorify and worship God, that if they're choosing to do the same thing, then we will enjoy this, this unity. But my family is not my first priority. This was eye-opening uh, when I did a, a study with some men last year in Ephesians 5, husbands and wives, to hear a man who had been married for five, six decades say... Husbands, you are not supposed to be the thing that satisfies your wife. And you're like, wait, sorry, what? <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm, supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to provide for her and supply for her and I'm supposed to fulfill her needs. And he's saying, no, you're not. You are supposed to bring her to the one who will. Because at the end of our lives, Karen and I are going to be separated. Death is going to separate us. And she's going to end up with the true bridegroom. And it's not me. 
And so when we talk about the unity, wow, when we talk about the unity that we're supposed to have in Christ, it is not that I am trying to maintain these relationships with you all at all cost. And I'm going to do whatever I possibly can, whatever I can, to maintain that. No, no. I'm going to keep my eyes on Christ and follow Him. He's, he's going to take us all to where we need to be. And I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to encourage us all to come together to that place. Right? There are going to be times where members of our family choose to deviate. They don't, they don't want to go to that place. They find something in this world that seems to them, in the moment at least, to be better. Oh, that, that destination seems more enticing. I'm going to try going that way. We must resist the temptation to follow them there and try to hang on to them. Instead, we should do everything we can to see that coming before, it's, before they're way off on that path. To see that coming, be so involved with each other's lives that, that we start hearing things. They're, they're talking in a way that I haven't, I haven't heard them say those types of things before. Or I'm noticing they're, they're pulling away when they used to be really invested. Or they seem really down and discouraged. Something's going on in their life and I want to see how I can help. We should be so on the pulse of, of each other that, that we see it, maybe even before they realize Maybe before they even know how to verbalize what's going on. There's something, there's something bothering you, I can tell. What, what can I do to help? Yeah. The real rub with Christianity is truth is the fence that is the boundary that we are to remain in. And people want to do what they want to do. They don't want a fence. They don't want anybody telling them what they can and cannot do. They want, that's what the whole society is about today is just tearing down that fence and throwing it in a pile and setting it on fire. They don't want any boundaries at all. Right, but, right. But we need to, you know, that's what we've been studying, that for us to be effective, we need to be within the boundaries of Christ. That's right. The truth. Be Christ in love. We didn't talk very much about this. We'll go into it more on Wednesday. But this, what does this imply? This sentence, what does this imply? Taking a stand. Do something. Do something, right? I'm seeing a brother or a sister of mine heading towards a cliff. And I say, uh, I don't want him in danger. I'm right. telling you. <laughs> well, and usually we won't be so cold-hearted that we'll say that, but that's what we're doing, Right? I'm seeing you drowned, but I don't want to endanger our friendship. So I'd rather see you spiritually destroyed because we've, we've put relationships with people as the idol, as the objective. That's not it. Maintaining the unity is it. So I'm seeing you drowned. <laughs> you better believe I'm jumping into that water and I'm going to do everything I can to offer you the life, life preserver, right? So speak up. You see something happening, you, 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 you see changes happening in, in each other's lives. It's unloving to stay quiet. Yes, Karen. And maybe sometimes we struggle with humility um, where I'm, I'm struggling with knowing the best way to go about that. But I see Jesus doing that 
humbly, you know, coming to the woman at the well or, or anyone that he interacted with. And it didn't mean that he didn't speak up the way that he approached people with such a um, humble, thoughtful, gentle kind of way. Yes. And I will say for Wednesday, let's study John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We've already talked about this example in Acts 2. How did Peter approach those people and speak the truth in love? Let's Let's talk about how Jesus approached the woman at the well and spoke the truth in love. And then, I'm not going to rush it in the last two minutes. I would love for you all to come with, with biblical definitions of this word. There are some of them contained even within this chapter. But when, when the Holy Spirit uses this word, what is he actually saying? What does this word mean? And it's not the ooey-gooey, you make my heart flutter kind of feeling. So what, is, what does that involve? And that's it. Wow. So, um, we're still going to be in chapter 5 of the book. I would love, if you all could, to me, the most effective way has been just to read the chapter. And as I do, just highlighting something so that when class time comes and, you know, what stood out to you in this chapter, I can remember, oh, it's the part that I highlight. Um, We really do need you all, to the best of your abilities, to, to read the chapter before class. It'll, it'll help. Um, so thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you.